Good evening, everybody. This is Rich Duncan with Ink Heist, and tonight I'm going to be speaking with author Daniel Brahm, who has a new book out from Cemetery Dance called The Serpent Shadow. Um, Shane can't be here tonight. He's still recovering from his surgery, and Daniel and myself uh, wish him well. And tonight's a very special episode, because in addition to talking with Daniel about his book, The Serpent Shadow, and the anthology he edited for Lathe Press, Spirits Unwrapped, we're going to start things off with an excerpt from The Serpent Shadow, and we're also going to have a reading of a short story at the end called How to Stay Afloat When Drowning, and it appears in the anthology called Paradiola, which you can correct me, Daniel, if I mess that up, edited wow. by uh, James Everington. Yeah, I didn't look that up myself. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. I, people know from uh, from our other episodes that sometimes with certain things, Shane and I, we just do our best and, you know, hope it's not too bad. That's one of my <laughs> One of my superpowers is to mispronounce words. So, <laughs> so yeah, you'll fit right in with us then. <laughs> but, yeah, so uh, I know you have an excerpt from The Serpent Shadow that you'd uh, like to share with everybody. Um, I really, really enjoyed this book, and I'm excited for people to hear this excerpt because this was one of my favorite parts. So whenever you're ready, you can share that with us. Sure thing. Yeah, thank thank you, um, Rich and Shane, uh, for having me. Uh, like you said, we um, we miss Shane, and I'm glad you're putting your health first. Uh, but um, yeah, we hope hope you get well soon, and looking forward to talking to you again. Yeah, so I'll go I'll go into it. This is an excerpt, like Rich said, from uh, the Serpent Shadow from Cemetery Dance. Uh, it's out now as an ebook only, and just to set up. Uh, Really briefly, I hate doing all these setups, but uh, we're going to pick up um, pick up in a, a middle section here. So the story, for those of you who haven't read the book, the story is set in Mexico in 1986, and it's the dawn of like the resort resort era time in the Yucatan Peninsula, which was like a really different time before cell phones, before computers were so prevalent. It was um, the Yucatan was like only you know only. Uh, just years before had been like a lawless, mostly undeveloped area, kind of similar to our wild, wild west. So as outsiders and development comes, uh, the local Mexicans and mine people are engaged in sort of a quiet war for the future of what's going to become of the area. There's a killer known as the White Lady who's been disrupting the Christmas time vacation down there. And there are those who think that she is, this killer is Santa Muerte. Saint Death from their folklore. Our main characters that are going to be in this excerpt are Anne Marie and David. They're two young teenage wannabe lovers who are, are experiencing their first tastes of freedom and the world at large outside the bounds of the, the lives that they know. Their first time alone together is when they are out in the jungle exploring the archaeology with a man named Ramon who claims to be a guide. And when they're out there, they encounter people worshiping and assembling into these human chains, holding hands along the archaeological paths. And this section picks up when their guide and everything begins to take a turn for the strange. Person after person emerged from the jungle. They moved along the Sock Bay in single file, stepping in unison until the first person in line 
one of the young women I recognized from the trail reached the foot of the pyramid and stopped. About a dozen people were in front of Ramon. He looked ridiculous with all that green paint slathered on his face and back and chest and in that feather headdress. He shouted something in Mayan, and the young woman began to climb. The line followed her up the steps. People kept filing out, one by one, feeding the procession. I had no idea how far it stretched. Look at everyone, Anne-Marie said. Ramon said there were 40 or 50 families living around here, I said. I think there are more people here than that. Come on, let's just split, I said. We can go down the other side. Why would we want to do that? Anne-Marie said. They're sharing this with us. We should be honored. If you're going to bail, just go ahead. That stung. She was fascinated by their ceremony, and my first reaction was to run. I took her hand and squeezed it. This was my last chance to play it safe. I knew this was danger. Scared as I was, I did want to see. To see with her. Oh, I was just, you know, looking out for you. I don't need looking out for, she said. We watched a lot of people move up the pyramid. After a few minutes, the young woman from the trail reached the final step. She climbed onto the pyramid top, walked past us to the temple, and disappeared inside without acknowledging us. Six or seven people followed exactly the same way. The next person, another young woman, followed and stopped right outside the temple. The next stopped an arm length from her. Ramon was the next up. Green paint from his face was in his stringy hair and headdress. With a smile and a nod, he directed us to stand in the line. Anne-Marie complied and moved to an arm's length away from the last person. They had left room for me. Ramon nodded, directing me to stand next to her. I didn't move. Anne-Marie looked at me with unabashed confusion. I didn't want to see her expression turn to disappointment, so I shuffled in line next to her. Satisfied, Ramon strode to the temple opening and disappeared inside. He called out in Mayan from, out, from inside the temple. Everyone responded by joining hands. The woman just outside the temple held the hand of the person standing just inside. Anne-Marie was hand in hand with the Mayan girl next to her. She held her other hand out to me. A Mayan guy was next to me, his arm outstretched and his hand open. His other hand grasped the hand of the girl on the step below him. The chain of people continued down the pyramid, across the sock bay, and into the jungle. Come on, what are you waiting for? Anne-Marie said. I had a feeling that something was about to happen, that nagging feeling that I had forgotten. Something was back, spreading uneasiness through my bones. I just knew that if I joined hands with everyone, I was gonna be a part of whatever it was. And I yearned for it. As strange as it was, I yearned to be a part I put my right hand in the hand of the guy on the step. His hand was strong and was no stranger to hard work. 
He held on to me as if he were gripping an important tool, and he kept adjusting his grip as if he were afraid he might accidentally lose hold. Then I reached for Anne Marie's hand with my left. Her fingers closed around mine, and a chill of excitement ran through me. I stood there in the line, not knowing what to do with myself, like during one of those moments of silence in an assembly back in high school, or a silent prayer in temple. I was never able to focus on what I was told to do or pray. My mind would always wander and run wild like it was doing now. I thought of how the guy's hand sort of felt like Dad's, and how much it meant to Dad to bring us on vacation. I thought of Anne Marie standing outside of the club last night, of her leg against mine when we were sitting outside of the room of the hotel. I watched the smile on her face slowly growing as she watched me. I thought of how good it felt to be close to her, how good her skin felt. I wanted to feel her chest against mine and her arms wrapped around me. She blushed, and a big smile erupted on her face. I smiled, too, and a laugh escaped me. She attempted to chastise me with a stern look, but the blush never left her face. I looked to the sky and listened to the breeze rustle the treetops, to the insects and birds, and the sounds of the people on the stairs shuffling in place. I had been sure something was going to happen when we all linked hands, but nothing had happened. A little pop resounded from inside the temple barely audible above the everyday noises. I felt it more than heard it. I thought someone had opened champagne or something vacuum sealed. I listened for it again, and I heard a faint hiss like air escaping a tire. Then Ramon screamed. The guy holding my hand squeezed tight. The chain of people tugged, and we all lurched towards the rectangular door. Ramon yelled in excitement. A horrible smile spread on the face of the woman next to Anne-Marie. My arms spasmed. I felt a shock in my right hand. The jolt shot through me and out my left hand. As quickly as it had come, the sensation had gone. I stood there trying to recall the feeling in my body, but only an echo remained. I wondered if I had really felt anything other then Charlie Horse from standing with my arms up. The hiss grew louder, then abruptly stopped. Ramon let out a tortured cry, all trace of his excitement gone. The woman standing just outside the temple stumbled backward and fell, pulling the person inside down with her. The woman next to her tried to keep a hold on her hand, but she fell too, and their hands came apart. The line shifted. Everyone lost their handholds. Ramon stepped outside the temple entrance, his form and failing arms, a green blur, only visible for a flash, before he stumbled back into the dark. All along the chain, people were letting go of each other and breaking their silence. The sound of their tense conversations joined the din of the jungle. Ramon stumbled out of the temple again. A big green snake had its jaws clamped over the bottom of his face and his neck, its long body, floated in the air next to him. In defiance of gravity, it looked like one of those tree boas, but all grown up and thick as my leg, Ramon swatted at it and stumbled in circles. 
feathered wings unfolded from the snake's back with a whoosh they were red red as ramon's headdress with each undulation of the snake's body the wings grew a little larger yellow then blue feathers appeared among the red as they opened one summer dad showed me a butterfly crawl out of a cocoon and pump blood into its new wings this was like that only it was happening much much faster people were screaming in the corner of my eye i saw Anne marie crawling into the temple i knew something horrible was happening but i couldn't look away the way the snake moved the way its body cut the air was of profound importance that was eclipsing all other thoughts looking at it filled me with calm despite the erupting chaos all i wanted to do was watch its green scales catch the sunlight the two women who had fallen crawled to their knees and bowed their heads in prayer another woman spun with ramon ignoring his muffled cries as she tried to dance with him the snake whipped its body and knocked into her she lost her balance and stumbled backwards over the edge of the pyramid Ramon's hands found the snake's head and tried to pry it off his face. A rivulet of blood ran down his neck, a red-gray streak in the sweat and green paint. As he struggled to free himself, the snake's wings extended fully. The symmetrical arc of bright red and yellow and blue feathers began to vibrate, then became a grayish-purple blur that buzzed and clicked like the flying fish we had seen this morning the snake rose higher ramon's feet lifted off the pyramid top the whirs and clicks intensified as the snake struggled for altitude then it opened its mouth and let ramon drop he fell to his knees clutched his face and flailed his other arm blindly the thing hovered above him with its head facing me I didn't get the sense it was seeing me, or could even see at all. Its eyes were solid black, and struck me as something that belonged to a deep sea creature, or something that lived in the dark. Ramon let out a sob and cried, Why? The snake lunged at him, and he rolled to avoid it. It snapped at the space where he had been a second ago. Then it snapped the air wildly. The inside of its mouth was black unnaturally black the black of space i thought the black between the stars a loud hiss was coming from its open maw something about the horrible sound brought my wits back to me and i backed up and lowered myself onto the first step of the pyramid i wanted to run for cover but i found i still could not look away the snake flew in small circles above ramon gracefully moving through the air like a fish through water tendrils of black smoke trailed in its wake the smoke was wafting from its body and floated sideways not up like smoke should the hiss grew louder patches of skin on the snake's back were turning black it twisted and corkscrewed and rose higher black patches on its belly were crackling and bubbling i thought it was burning but there wasn't any fire, only the black eating away at it and the thick smoke that lingered too long in the air. A long piece of skin 
starting at its head, peeled away and fell off, exposing muscle and bone. The two women who had been praying sprung to their feet and tried to catch it. They leapt into the air, reaching for the snake, ignoring its lunges in their direction, but only captured handfuls of emptiness. Skin fell off its head and tail and back, but it continued snapping and lunging, even though its bones and half its skull were exposed. With a mighty heave, it thrust itself skyward, but its buzzing wings went still, and it stopped rising. Feathers crumbled to dust. Black patches spread over the last bits of green scales. It jerked and rolled as it fell, a withered black shape against the sky. Then it was only black dust raining down on the pyramid, coating Ramon and the worshippers and me. I carefully stood and approached the temple to find Anne-Marie. Ramon looked up at me as I passed him. His face was marred with gashes. Tears and blood were running down his face. I'd never seen such a defeated, deflated look before in my entire life. The man was weeping. Everything about him screamed confusion and pain. I felt eyes upon me. Anne-Marie was standing in the rectangular opening to the temple, watching, cool as can be. Ramon's loose-leaf binder was tucked in the crook of her arm. The two Mayan women were looking past her, past Ramon, and I to her. Framed in the square doorway, she looked magnificent and regal. She was just Anne-Marie in her hiking clothes, but she surveyed, surveyed the chaos with such poise. Standing there like that, it wasn't hard to imagine her as an image from one of those Stella come to life. I don't know what went wrong, Ramon said in between deep, heaving sobs. I did everything right. The women looked to him, then back to Anne-Marie, their eyes open wide and fixed on her. Santa Muerte te llama, Anne-Marie whispered. Saint Death calls you. She had spoken so softly, so quickly. I wondered if she had even said it at all. The two women grabbed Ramon by the arms and began to drag him. It was such an act of violence, I felt a pang in my stomach. Without any compassion, they towed him to the other side of the pyramid, and disappeared over the edge. Anne-Marie came to me and brushed black dust off my face. Good look for you, she said. Seriously? I asked. Holy shit, what the hell was all that? Come on, let's get out of here, she said. And we'll cut it there. That'll be the end of the excerpt. Wow, thanks, Daniel, for sharing that. Like I said, that was one of my favorite parts of the book, and I feel like it's a nice little microcosm of the story as a whole. And that was also my first author reading. I mean, uh, I live out here in the middle of nowhere, so I don't really get to participate in stuff like that too often, so I really appreciate it. Oh, wow, it was, it was an absolute pleasure uh, to, to read it, to read it here and to read it for you. Thank you so much, and... I'm glad glad you liked the book and and that particular part of it too. Yeah, so Serpent Shadow, that's your debut novel, correct? Yep, that's the that's the first one, yeah. 
Okay, so yeah, and I know you. It's out through Cemetery Dance, which most of our listeners will know. You know, is one of the biggest names out there as far as you know horror fiction, whether it be through the magazine or the book imprint. And I was just kind of curious, you know, how did you get in touch with them? Was it just through like a regular open submission? And what was it like having your debut novel come out through Cemetery Dance? Oh, I'll, I'll take that in the reverse. What it was like is an absolute dream come true. I mean, I feel so enthusiastic about Cemetery Dance. I feel incredibly lucky to be with them. Um, and yeah, my 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 story with Cemetery Dance goes goes back um, a little bit, and uh, you know, it sort of sort of dovetails with like the story of of my writing and. and me finding my place in my writing. Um, we're dating back now a decade and a half ago. I, yeah, I was a slush pile survivor. Um, I, at the time I was writing, I, my writing hadn't changed, but I didn't really know much or anything about horror. Um, I sort of had a philosophy of just, um, you know, submit, submit to the, the places that, um, people I respected were submitting to and, you know, sort of ashamed, but not, you know, not uh, ashamed that I hadn't, you know, I didn't know, um, I didn't know so much about horror and about cemetery dances as I obviously know now when I submitted and they bought my first uh, short story um, uh, called um, Across the Darien Gap, which was out in, um, I think it was issue, um, wow, issue 54 or something, but, you know, back in 2005. So that was how I um, I first became uh, connected with Cemetery Dance. And then over the years, they had bought um, a, a couple more of my short stories for the magazine. So I'm very grateful um, to my editor, Norman Prentice, who um, had been editing those, some of those short stories, and he took over. Um, their ebook division, and he asked me to do a collection, um, which became the Night Marchers and Other Strange Tales. I know this is becoming a long-winded answer to how I got the novel um, uh, connected with them, but then yeah, Norman acquired uh, he acquired the novel for the uh, the ebook division, and also he um, uh, acquired it. Uh, it's going to be coming out in other editions. Uh, in the future uh, from from Cemetery Dance uh, proper. So, uh, again, incredibly grateful uh, for that to happen. And so I grew up with Cemetery Dance as an adult. Like that was through Cemetery Dance is how I learned about the wide world of horror. Yeah, that that's pretty interesting. And it's kind of cool how, too, like you said, your first short story was through them and now your debut novel is coming out through them that's got to be kind of surreal but and especially since like you said it kind of played a larger part in your you know introduction to the horror world yeah no i mean i i really couldn't i couldn't um you know have picked it better um theme uh thematically or um setting setting is a big part in my story so uh, across the darien gap is another Central American set story, and like like you just heard from the Serpent Shadow, that's also in Central America. So, yeah, it's like really cool that I mean, God, just how you know I, I sound 
I'm always just going to be eternally grateful. Yeah, not just um, how great, how lucky I am and grateful to be part of Cemetery Dance, but also I'm just aware of, um, you know, just how wide Cemetery, how the arms are open to everything on the spectrum of horror. I mean, Cemetery Dance, they really, um, they really do take, take in all different kinds of horror. I mean, I think they maybe might be more well known for um i don't know maybe what you might call some of that you know that 80s 80s horror or um maybe even st stuff that might be more um more traditional and more classic but then they they also um you know they're right out there taking people out of the slush pile or taking um people like myself who might be maybe a, a more quiet or more literary or more on the strange ends of the spectrum yeah, and that's kind of interesting that you mentioned about the setting, because that was one of the things that I, I'm a big settings person too with stories, and that was one thing I liked about Serpent Shadow was, you know, it was a little bit different in that it was set in Central America, and, you know, it was also set kind of in the past, um, in 1986, and I was just wondering... Was that something you had always planned or what kind of inspired you to have it also set in the past during that time period? Yeah, um, look, uh, everyone's writing process is, is different and I, I'm no stranger to um, to revision and feedback. But as to the part, what did I, I did always intend for that to be um, to be set in 1986 um because um that was that was where the inspiration for the story came from i mean um the you know where the inspiration came from i, I had visited the yucatan as a youngster at that time during the early 1980s and you know in, in the years the 30 years that followed i i been back at different times but one of the things that I wanted to capture in the story was so when I had been there in the 80s I had gone out to some to some of these places and seen you know just this this amazing wild um, jungles as you can imagine and then the next year when I returned I literally saw the bulldozers smelt the smoke saw the fires I saw what's now called the Mayan Riviera a place I can't afford one night a hotel room, but I saw them building it. I saw them clear cutting it. And I was like, wow, okay, this is, this is, you know, something, uh, you know, it's maybe even more of an important issue or more of a prominent issue, but like, this was something that, that I felt viscerally and like, yeah. So for a long time I struggled or wanted to know like, well, how do you, how do you capture that in a story? I mean, how, and also how do you capture the story without, being heavy-handed politically, even though I I may have certain uh, political beliefs, I think um, you come across as too preachy or preachy at all, or talking in a story at least turns me off. So one of the other things that I hope comes through in the book is that there are two sides to every coin, even on something every in the surface. So on the surface, we here in um, uh, North America might be like, oh. The destruction of the rainforest is bad. Uh, you know, biodiversity protecting it is good, and I do feel that way. However, a flip side of that is the people who were 
I saw, you know, living in that area were some of the worst, some of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. Some of the worst poverty. And because this place is clear cut and because, you know, Cancun and, and the um, uh, Cozumel and uh, all the areas are now what they are. I, I've been back 30 years later and that poverty has gone. Um, so I guess, you know, if you're a dad thinking about your kid or who grew up then, like, well, you sure are glad that happened. So I don't know. That's a, a long-winded bit of inspiration, or at least what I was thinking. You know, I'm not um, not sure all that comes through in the story, but at least it was on my mind when I was writing it. Yeah, I I feel like it did because that was one of the things I kind of jotted down in my notes that I liked about it as far as the setting especially is it conveys that so well because some of your descriptions – you know, especially like when they're at the hotel, like they're kind of in the midst of this growing, almost like modernization, I guess you would say. But like literally right outside, like in view of their from their room, you can kind of see like the ancient architecture of their past. So I felt like those kind of scenes and, you know, the way you kind of explore that issue throughout the story, you know, between the different characters, I felt like it came through really well. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm glad. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that came through and it came through and, um, you know, everything has everything has to serve the story. I'm glad it came through in a way that you know, it was entertaining first, you know, and. If there's if there's a message or even if the message is just like a snapshot, a picture of a place, you know, a, a place that no longer is, that's a cool thing. I guess that's one of the things I like about settings or I like about different time periods or you know even in science fiction is like it can, you know, at least when I show up for 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 a read, yeah, I like I like to feel that I'm transported somewhere, you know, or, or you know especially somewhere that. I've never been or maybe never could go again. Yeah, that makes sense. And it was interesting for me to read this book too, especially, and now knowing that it kind of came from a personal experience of yours, because I actually went there like uh, maybe 12 years ago. And all all I ever really knew, because that was the only time I had been there, was, you know, like this resort area. So I kind of, it was kind of cool to be able to, you know, see that, you know, it wasn't always that way and kind of how it, you know, developed over time. But um, one thing I wanted to touch on is I kind I don't know if this was intentional, like this sort of take on horror, because there's like a bunch of different scenes in there and like different kind of aspects of horror. But one thing that I liked was the inclusion of, you know, the, the serpent. It kind of, some of the scenes, you know, the visions that he has um, throughout the story and stuff, and even from, like, the part you read, it kind of gives across this cosmic horror vibe. And, you know, not all cosmic horror, but it seems like a large part of cosmic horror is heavily influenced by H.P. Lovecraft. And I kind of like that this had that same feel but, you know, it was something unique. It wasn't necessarily relying on that sort of mythology. Yeah, uh, I, um, thanks for mentioning that. I mean, that's something that is interesting to me as um, as the author of that um, and also as just 
you know, I mentioned I'm, you know, a, a newcomer to horror, and yeah, I knew very little of Lovecraft when I was writing this this book, which was written a number of of years ago. You know, it takes a while for things to go through production. You know, since the the writing of this book, I have learned a lot more uh, not, uh, about weird fiction and its lineage and its its uh, founding grandfather, um, H.P. Lovecraft. So. Uh, while I was sitting down, you know, in this very same spot there, I'm talking to you and I was writing that book, if you had asked me, uh, said the word cosmic horror, I wouldn't have known what you were talking about. But well, so I hadn't been exposed to a red much or any Lovecraft. I had my exposure to Lovecraft and his themes and cosmic horror came in like secondary, uh, and extended, um, influences, right? So I sort of like knew the cosmic horror and otherworldly stuff, sort of like from Hellboy, or like from other, you know, maybe some bad, not that Hellboy's not a bad movie, some other, you know, bad movies uh, or or Lovecraft um, that were Lovecraft influenced. Um, obviously, one of the things that influenced me as a kid was the movie Q, Quetzalcoatl, the the winged serpent. Did you see that '80s flick? No, and um, not to get too off topic, but it's kind of ties into what you're saying is that you know i'm a little bit younger so i kind of had you were a newcomer to horror and that i kind of am in the same boat in that you know i've been a horror fan for most of my life but because of like when i was born i missed out on you know some of those seminal films and seminal books and i'm slowly making my way back through those so it's kind of like the same yeah, thing i'm in the same boat with you yeah just now I'm, I'm i think i'm of a different generation um uh then it sounds like but yeah i didn't i didn't grow up on i, I grew up on stephen king and, and clive barker but you know i missed um i missed most of the you know, the 80s horror i missed most of the the books i'm learning about it now so it was um obviously you think about well how do i connect the book with readers after the fact and you know learning hey dude learning or being told that i had written something that fit in that okay yeah it has an aspect of cosmic horror to it um was really pleasing and and you you had mentioned yeah there's other types of horror in there yeah like there a lot of my work a lot of my short stories are, is like quiet or literary but in this in this novel i had some room to stretch out it does um yeah i guess i'm able was able to incorporate other kinds of of um maybe some, yeah, different types of horror that were in there. And that was, you know, it felt, um, I guess after the fact, it felt good to, yeah, to be able to just, just do it that way and have it, uh, have it be what it is. <laughs> and have yeah. it be able to apply it after the fact and not having to like, oh, there's too much blood. There's too many knives or there's not enough blood or there's not enough knives, you know, to just have it be like, um, you know, very fortunate enough to have been working with a publisher and specifically, uh, my editor, Norman Prentice, was um, uh, especially fantastic working with him on on this book. You know, I really learned a lot uh, from from his his guidance, his and his judgment and his notes made me a better author and made this book a better book. Yeah, and th you know, like you said, that that's kind of cool that. You know, since you were a newcomer and finding your way through these, I feel like it kind of helped, maybe not helped is the wrong word, but I think that's part of what makes this book so unique and special is, 
you know, without, I'm not going to spoil too much, but you have, you know, some of that cosmic stuff, like when they see the serpent, it's also kind of almost like a little bit fantastical in some parts, but then there, you know, is some very brutal stuff that takes place in there as well. So I, it's interesting that you kind of mentioned how all that went into the process, because then it's almost like, and, you know, I'm not saying that writers do this necessarily but it's not like you're going into it you know like okay i want to write this type of horror story or you know it just kind of happened naturally and it kind of makes this really interesting uh like interplay of styles yeah there is one i think yeah we won't spoil for the readers but there is there is one very brutal there is one very bloody you know there was one very you know scene where you know with knives in it and that is something um that does not appear in my short fiction you know i think uh, the majority at least up until that time you know the majority of my short fiction did not have that um some of it just was organically uh some of it was in perhaps intentional and maybe it as uh, maybe there sometimes i shied away from some of the stronger scenes either because i wasn't comfortable with it or i didn't think it was my style or i didn't yeah i didn't think think i was um maybe i wasn't there as a writer yet so it it felt you know it felt good to be able to um yeah to to do what the story called for and to be able to um let different styles or let different whatever you call them like aspects hallmarks of horror be in the same story and you'll know, have it work as, as a coherent, uh, coherent whole. Yeah. And, um, two, I have a, I have a question from Shane actually that sort of yeah. ties into, um, you know, everything we've been talking about thus far, but, uh, Shane wanted to ask, he was thinking about your work and he knows you embrace a lot of mythology in it and or it's at least a factor in it and he was just wondering if you're a student of various types of mythology or just a student of authors and he said he knows you like lucius shepherd uh, and yeah, he just I, wanted me to ask you about that wow there's a lot of you know hey shane <laughs> uh wish, wish you were here buddy um thanks thanks for the great question thanks for relaying it rich um yeah yeah you know like <laughs> i can't give an interview without talking about Lucia Shepard, my, my admiration, um, for him is so great. And, uh, he, he probably, along with Tanith Lee, he, he and Tanith Lee were, you know, the authors I credit as inspiring my younger self to first become a reader, not just a genre reader, just to become a reader. Those were the two that did it for me. And, you know, I wasn't aware of their influence, but now that I'm a little bit more along the roads of my writing journey, I definitely see, you know, how subconsciously, like, their work just in, in, inspired me. Lucius Shepard, for those of you who might not know, a lot of his work is indeed set in, in Central America. Um, yeah, The Serpent Shadow, I think, is a bit more mythological than the majority of Lucius Shepard's um, work um because you know this the serpent shadow as from the excerpt you read there's there's this that being there that snake or that creature whatever it is it it just bears an uncanny resemblance 
to Quetzalcoatl, the um, you know the godlike figure in, in Mayan mythology and culture. Um, I'm not a student of mythology or culture um, um, officially, other than just uh, just a life, just had a lifelong interest in uh, the supernatural, uh, a lifelong interest just in other cultures. So um, yeah, it made it made sense um, that that would bubble up from my subconscious and find its way into the story that I wanted to tell. Um, you know, uh, you know, many. This is called the Serpent Shadow because, right there, the supernatural element. There's this monstrous thing in the story. But as you know, we began the interview, yeah, like this is a story that you know, it's a war. It's a war about between ideology. Like, is is this place going to be one way or is it going to be another way? And it made sense when I um, when I develop stories and I think about characters. I, you know, I think about I try to think about what. Um, you know, what would the conflicts be or what would the, the people be thinking? And if, you know, allow yourself to go to the supernatural, I think it made sense or it made sense in the logic of this story that um, this sort of magic or this sort of uh, mythology would come into play um, as a potential weapon. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of funny that he asked that because like you, I've always had a lifelong interest in mythology more so like the kind they like teach heavily in school like you know the greek mythology and all that stuff but like recently i've i've only read of two so far but i feel like you know central america and mexico and all of those areas they have a very like rich and unique folklore and mythology and stuff like that and it's it's been cool to kind of see that start to come about lately um and i i it's one that i wish would be more prevalent i know there's a ton of great writers writing them but it just seems like it doesn't kind of get the spotlight that you know other types of mythologies might but they have you know such a rich um such a rich mythology that i feel like there's a ton of untapped potential there for those sorts of stories. Um, like one I read besides your book was uh, Mayan Blue by the Sisters of Slaughter. I don't oh, know if yeah. you've read that one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I um, uh, yeah, Michelle was kind enough to offer, you know, a, a, a blurb of, of this book. I'm very grateful uh, to her um, you know, for supporting this book. And yeah, they, yeah, that book is is it's a fantastic read and like you said it, it, it a different um it's different than a lot of the stuff that's out there and, and taps into that mythology yeah and there, that's one i'd like to kind of explore more um but yeah the one other thing i wanted to ask you is um i'm relatively new to your work this was my first I think this was the first thing I read by you is the serpent shadow. And I know you have a short story collection and stuff like that. And I was just curious. I like to ask writers this because it seems that there's multiple different camps. Some writers like, you know, the space and the freedom of a novel. Some like the short story format. Some like novellas. I was just curious if you have a preferred format and what you like about that format. 
Wow. Um, I, I'm sure my my answer to that question, you know, could change if you ask me later tonight or tomorrow <laughs> or whatnot. I mean, I guess um, uh, I'm fortunate enough to, yeah, like uh, the Serpent Shadow. It's a short novel. Maybe it's even a novella. I'm, you know, I mean, uh, I'm not exactly up on you know the word counts. I think six maybe yeah. sixty thousand or above is technically a novel. I don't believe. The Serpent Shadow even hits that, it, you know, so maybe it's, it's technically a novella. Um, I'm a big proponent of letting the story be the size it needs to be. So the way that worked out for me, at least for like the first decade, decade and a half of my writing journey was, all right, a lot of ideas or a lot of stories that felt like they were going long, right, when they started to get above that certain mark sort of timed themselves, they sort of excluded themselves from the market, right? Because uh, the market of, uh, at least the short story market, um, so which when I was when I was starting out, um, the novella was pretty much an unheard of, it was a kiss of death format, but, you know, for a lot of reasons, you know, with the, the, the change of the market, the advent of e-books, a lot of the change of distribution, um, the novella has come back or maybe not even just come back. The novella is experiencing a um, it's golden time, especially uh, with a, a tour, a lot of publishers. And I think tour.com is, is maybe the leader in, in putting out like genre uh, novellas. Um, oh, so, you know, so what do I prefer? I don't know. I always look, I have a, I have a love for the, for the short story and for the craft. Uh, I love short stories. I love, everything that goes into them but I, you know um you know yeah i'm really uh grateful for the opportunity to to write longer as well because it's it's just something different you know i think there while there are similarities there are different there are different things that you have to do in your process in writing them and um yeah a lot, so much so much different opportunities you have as well. So I think that I think I just wonderfully did not answer that question for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you did. A, I think you did a great job. And that was, I guess, when I was going over the, you know, various camps of, you know, they prefer this or this or this. That was also one of them. And, you know, it makes sense <laughs> because, like you said, the story should always dictate everything, you know, as far as how long it's going to be, what it's going to be. But I think it's interesting. I just I asked that question because it seems kind of cut and dry. Like I like short stories or I like novels or I like novellas. But more times than not, it kind of gives these, you know, nuanced answers, you know, like you preferred the freedom of doing it in this format, but you like the craft of another. And I'm I'm relatively new to, you know horror fiction and reading again I was a very avid reader when I was younger and then I kind of took a break as a teenager and you know got more involved in like music and stuff and then I oh. my later teenage years and early adult years is when I really got back into writing and reading and you know one of the things that I like to talk about is like those different formats because as a reader I always read just novels you know, because those were readily available until I got involved in the, you know, indie horror world. But 
now that I'm reading more short stories, because I always used to think, and I'm sure many people who aren't deeply involved in, you know, literary pursuits, you know, are just casual readers, they might look at short stories and think, you know, oh, well, that's got to be pretty easy. But personally, I think that it's got to be even more challenging in some ways, because you have such a finite amount of space to try and convey a whole idea, basically a fully formed idea. Yeah, I think that, I think there's a, certainly a different craft to it. Um, um, for a while there, I was writing uh, even sh in shorter form. I, I was part of this um, website called The Daily Cabal, which was a it's it's no longer in existence now, but it was a flash fiction website. And, you know, uh, I think a thousand words was the tops you were allowed to do. And, you know, and I wrote maybe 20, 30, 40 flash fiction stories. So it was, um, it was even a different, I found it to be even more of a challenging to be able to convey something and even, you know, and even uh, smaller, um, small, smaller words. I'm, I'm curious um, as I'm answering this, I'm just thinking about like, who are some, who are some of the, uh, the readers, I mean, some of the authors that you, that were the first, the first ones you were reading and are you a musician? Like what, what do you play? What do you listen to? Um, as far as like the first writers that I really got into, if I'm taking it all the way back to like my love of reading, yeah. this, this kind of gives away my age a bit, but I was obsessed with R.L. Stein. I owned every original Goosebumps book and my greatest regret in life was getting rid of those. I wish I still had them for my daughter and also for myself. Um, as an adult, you know, it was mainly the same kind of progression as, you know, basically everyone in horror is, you know, Stephen King and Barker and some of your more well-knowns. It wasn't until I started my old site, The Horror Bookshelf, that I really started being exposed to, you know, indie authors who, you know, wrote for smaller presses. And ever since then, it's just been kind of like a whirlwind trying to catch up um, as I far as huh? right. it's the simultaneous wonderful and horrible feeling that I'm going to go into my grave with my to to read pile still being massively yeah. high. It's this one, just this wonderful thing that there's so much must read stuff out there. I am terminally overwhelmed. And that's like, you know, yeah. I guess ultimately that's a great place to be, you know? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. And real quick, because I could, I have a story about that, but you asked about the music. I don't have any musical ability. That's all my co-host, Shane. But uh, as <laughs> I was just obsessive into listening to music, and I was, I'm very big into like the punk, hardcore, indie rock, basically all of those sub-genres. Oh, okay. Um, more current stuff is how I got into it, and then I slowly worked my way back through stuff from, like, the 90s, the 80s, and so on. And that was, ironically, kind of what shaped me as, you know, I guess you'd say a blogger, a journalist, because it made me want to go to journalism school. And uh, I basically started out writing about music, doing album reviews. Oh, wow. Interviews, and then... 
you know, once I started getting back into reading, I wanted to do my own thing. And I was like, hey, I'll start a, I'll start, you know, a horror book blog. Cause at the time I'm sure there was tons of them, but being new to it, I was like, I don't really see too many. So I just started one up and, you know, it eventually led me to here. <laughs> oh, cool. If you haven't, um, if you haven't read the work of, um, uh, Chad's uh, horror author Chad uh, Stroop out of uh, San Diego. I know he um, he he was he's very much into uh, the punk and indie punk rock scene, and is also a horror writer. So um, might be somebody to get on your radar there. Oh yeah, I I loved his. Uh, I I still have to read his new book, but yeah, I loved. Uh, I think it was called Secrets think, of yeah. the Weird. Secrets yeah. of the Weird, and uh, yeah, I, and his. Um, the new one, I think, is a se- Sexy Leper. Uh, yeah, highly recommend uh, uh, Chad Chad's work, and um, and he Chad is always posting, I think, uh, about the California yeah. uh, hardcore and punk scene. So it's really interesting to uh, thought of Chad. How are you, Chad? Thought of him when thought of you when uh, Rich said that. Yeah, I, I'm actually uh, friends with him on Facebook, and I yeah. love I love seeing like those old flyers and stuff. Yeah. But uh, I don't know if you probably do know. Um, I don't know if you've heard it, but for that book, one of the things, and that's another thing that you know I'm interested in is kind of how people are going about promoting their own works now. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff going on. You know, besides, you know, doing the podcast thing is cool. And, you know, I like you did a reading on here. I'm not sure other than, you know, sites like Pseudopod. I don't know if, you know, too many readings that are like readily available. So that's like something cool that I think you're doing. And then um, Kurt. Go go ahead. Sorry. No, that's all right. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, I started to cut you off. Sorry about that. (laughs) No, it's all good. Um, but yeah, Brian Kirk, he did something really interesting with his novel, uh, will haunt you. He developed, you know, this whole marketing campaign kind of, you know, it was like a website and like different journal entries and, you know, little Easter eggs hidden in your book, but going back to Chad, uh, he actually recorded like a demo tape yeah. for the band in that book. And that was so cool. As soon as I saw that and like yeah. saw that it was out there, I was like, oh, Chad, I need to have one of these tapes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love things that blur that like with Brian or Chad, um, those like really interesting things that like blur the line of fiction, you know, where I'm like, is this a real, is this a cassette from back in the day? Sort yeah. of like the way that I think one of the first ones to do it was um, 1999's The Blair Witch Project. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, you know, like this was like, you know, <laughs> I'm showing my age for sure. But I was one of those people where, you know, I, I was interested in this because, you know, I watched the Sci-Fi Channel. And for those that don't know, they before the movie came out, the Sci-Fi Channel was running – these really well done, perhaps even higher production value than the movie, documentaries on the Blair Witch, which is a made-up piece of folklore. But they sort of did like a fake show um, that were like, yeah, hey, you know, we're just we're here to you – know, I think it was called Secrets of the Blair Witch. And basically the ending, the ending of that fake documentary was like, and we're ending by letting you know we have found the tape. 
And the tape is going to be the subject of the movie coming out this summer called The Blair Witch Project. So I like it was on the sci-fi channel, so I'm like, this has gotta be a promo. But you know, I was one of those viewers that went into the movie with a sense of like, but is it? You know, like I mean yeah. in in retrospect, it founded a whole genre, whether you love it or hate it or have mixed feelings as I do. But you know, like um I have to say, you know, I it was fun to go along for that ride, you know, like the first time around there. And so, you know, it was, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe it's a promotional success story. I was going to say at least at least from a fun standpoint, like, yeah, it was a fun experience. And you mentioned promoting and, and as an independent author, that's something on my mind. Like, yeah, the, like the Blair Witch, they um, I think it was one of the most proportionally successful like indie film projects in the terms of like the budget of what they did to both promote and make it in terms of what it eventually uh, grossed. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a very formative movie for me because I was very young and like you, it was like my borderline early teenage years. Um, like you, I bought into it hook, line, and sinker. I had a tie-in book that was like, you know, supposed to collect all of the actual documents. And I, I told a story on an earlier episode about, you know, really when you boil it down, <laughs> it was not, not very much happens, you know. At this point, I feel like it's safe to, you know, spoil this movie yeah, if yeah. no one's seen it. But more or less, it's them finding, you know, these tiny little packages of, like, nothing more than, like, sticks and shit and, like, a finger and then a guy standing in the corner. So when you boil it down like that, you know, it's not that terrifying. Uh, that's the uniqueness. I mean, it was ter- it was absolutely terrifying because that structure and that um, sparseness lended to the fake verisimilitude, right? Like, if it was something... Yeah. If it was something slick or if a, a witch jumped out and jumped around with a knife, we'd be like, oh, bullshit. But we were like, yeah, they intentionally said, what the they created this. They created this ambiguity. and like, hey, look, you know, uh, this is it. This was a film. This is what happened. It's the actual film. It was it left you with a sense of unease, you know, like not like, hey, like when we walked out of that movie, it wasn't like, hey, cool movie, you know, like it was more like, what the fuck? Like, was that just my person? <laughs> I was like. Was that real? Oh. I, knew, I knew in my bones that because it was commercial that it had to be fake. But one of the people we were with like took my friends and she grabbed us both by the comp. She's like, listen, Dan, listen, if this happens to us, we're going back to back and we're fighting. I thought she was like, <laughs> real. She's like, swear to me now, if you're my friend, if this happens, we're not going down without fighting. You know? Like she was, you know, people believe that for real, you know. Yeah, and to your point, which also I should have mentioned this at the beginning, you can feel free to curse as much as you oh, want. Okay. I mean, we got Shane on here, so. <laughs> but uh, yeah, to your point, that that is kind of what made it scary. Yeah. And like when I was a kid, like my dad, which is I saw it at his house. I ter- told this story before, but basically, he lived along the woods, kind of like Ooh. that. So. And the development he lived in, you took your trash to, like, a big, big dumpster at the end of the driveway. I was so scared because, you know, (laughs) I got the sound of the woods. I would take it out there at night, and I would just run, and they would leave the lid open. I kind of just took two steps and, like, swung it and then just launched the bag and ran into the house because it was so scary. And like you said, 
you know, the internet was around back then, but it wasn't quite yeah, as, it wasn't you know, like fast. And, it wasn't what it was now. And um, yeah, omnipotent pretty much. And it's like, I'll admit up until, you know, it was quite a bit after that movie, but even then, like I knew it was a movie, but like, I still sort of bought into it. Yeah. I, yeah. I still thought that that rust and par aspect of the movie was real, you know, years after until, you know, things were more readily available on the internet. And then I'm like, Oh, they even made that up too. <laughs> yeah. And I guess that, you know, that's, like, I, I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're talking about this. Cause you know, maybe, uh, I first blush, like, I, I think my kind of work and um, whatever you call it, what do you call it? First person, um, what do you call the, the genre that it, that it spawned? Uh, found oh, footage. First yeah, person found, footage. found footage. Like, I think it's like, you know, like many great, for, you know, uh, progenitors or forerunners, like, it spawned a thousand inferior films that, like, didn't get what made the Blair Witch at least to me, scary and also unique, both in terms of um, uh, like that that marketing, that sort of you know hyper um, hyper media aspect to it. But even taking the media out of it, like um, you know, if we're here talking about horror, like what makes things scary, like um, you know, it's not the, the the cheapness, it's not like the the found footage, it's not like the low budget that makes um, Blair Witch scary. It's to me, I think it's that sense, that sense of ambiguity. Like, you know, they yeah. they presented all these explanations, but what you see on the page or what you see on the frame is, um, you're like, hey, like you were saying before, you're like, it's, it's not that much. It's just if you really want to break it down out of context, it's just this little thing. And it's just this, this um, you yeah, know, just a guy standing in a, in a corner. So, it, like, it, it's something unique in terms of horror or what. What is hard because it, it's bringing that element of um, it's the ambiguity of it that makes it work. And I think in that movie, whether it was accidental or intentional, there's a kind of horror where it, it, it's weird how it shares that element with the kind of horror that I both like and like to write, which, you know, which is the strange tale of the literary horror, which often the power of it is at least the amb- intentional controlled ambiguity or the lack of explanation of what the horror is or the supernatural um, element. And uh, I, I find it, it just kind of amazing to me that I'm thinking, wow, like Blair Witch kind of is fitting in with that. Yeah. And like you said, um, like that's one thing I noticed when I was reading the serpent shadow, which like I said, that I, that was, I'm pretty sure that was the first thing I read. I might've read, one other short story by you but that was one that was one thing that stood out to me was kind of you know through without again without spoiling it for people throughout that story you know David he's kind of like wrestling with you know like what's going on and you know how he should respond to that and I like that it kind of keeps that ambiguity right up until the end like even when you think you know where it's going to go and you think you know how david's ultimately going to respond to this you really don't up until you know those last couple of sentences yeah yeah well thanks yeah thanks for picking up on that yeah i mean um yeah the we won't spoil it but yeah the uh for those of that have read the ending um 
once you know once the editor and, and I you know did you know finalized and determined that yeah that really was and is going to remain the ending because uh, I had I had some doubts about the ending I'm like can can I end it this way like is that is that too much is that not enough is that wrong is that right like I I questioned it and it has like now that I've learned more about horror from that period like the 70s and 80s like I feel like it shares it shares a structure with what I'm calling perhaps some more traditional horror or from that period, which again, without spoiling it, um, there's a certain, there's a certain uh, kind of horror that ends in a place that I might, or other kinds of fiction might consider a beginning. Like it ends with a realization or an inciting incident or it ends with something and it's like, bam, and that's the ending. And in my short fiction, I never, I never ended something, what I call that kind of structure. So it was, and it was just an organic thing. So it was again a learning experience to have the reassurance from my editor, like, no, no, that's your ending, and this is why. And like, oh, I wasn't thinking of the why when I wrote it. I just felt that was the ending point. So obviously, after I wrote this, I, I thought a lot about <laughs> different kinds of stories and structures, and and came to them after the fact. Yeah. And, you know, I, one thing that I like too, and not that I think every story needs to have it or, but I'm always fascinated by different structures, you know, kind of like those ambiguities, like that, you know, lead up until then kind of like your book and, you know, just basically any type of different structure, like there's nothing wrong with, you know, more traditional structure. But it just always fascinated me, whether it be like the ambiguity or like an unreliable narrator or even just stretches of the form like, you know, House of Leaves or um, uh, Night Film. I don't know if you've read that, but it always Which just uh, Night, Night Film. I think her name oh. is Marisha Passell. Oh, OK. It's it's kind of like a it's a, you know, it's a regular book and it's basically, I'm probably going to butcher this because I remember, I read so many books, but I think it's vaguely about this guy who was a journalist and he was writing a profile of, I believe he was a horror movie director. And it basically, there was some stuff that happened and it basically ruined his career. And like the book is him, he gets drawn back into it when something happens to the director's daughter and he kind of crosses paths with that guy again. And it kind of mixes ambiguity all throughout. And then there's like multimedia elements where if you dig deep enough through all this extra stuff, like there was a, I don't know if it's all still online cause it's a little bit older, but there's, you know, there was like an app and there was like a website and you could read like journal scans, basically mm. ancillary elements to the book that would ultimately give you the answer if you wanted to, but still even kind of in an amb uh, ambiguous way. Mm. Or like uh, S, which was like a collaboration between, I believe, Stephen Dorst and J.J. Abrams. Wow. I don't know if you've read of that, heard of that one. But yeah, basically, I'm always interested in like different structures so it was cool hearing you talk about you know the oh. structure of serpent shadow oh wow i could i mean it it's a topic i am infinitely fascinated 
on, so like I'll have to cut myself short so I don't <laughs> fall down that rabbit hole. But to, but but talking about structure, I, I I have to mention or ask you about one film and one short story. Have you seen the film um, It Follows? Yeah, I love that movie. Okay. Yeah, and the short story is The Swords by Robert Aikman. Have you have you come upon that one? I have not, but I'm going to write that down. <laughs> yeah, definitely that's like, yeah, if you're going to like read a story and you're interested in non-traditional structures or if you're interested in, right, like strange tales, Robert Aikman coined the term for his fiction, he coined the term strange tales. And um, yeah, so we won't talk about the swords that much other than saying like, it has um, it has what I call the Aikman ending. I mean, um, one of the things I learned about endings is one of my teachers, the great Kelly Link, and she thought she didn't say all endings should be this way, but she said one a hallmark of a, an interesting or great ending is the feeling that the story has reached a stopping place, but the story is still continuing on, and um, this, the ending of the swords is one of those one of those endings where you're like, wow, that makes me have to reevaluate the whole story, and I'm not you're not sure what happened or you know what happens, but you know that um, the character is uh, forever changed by this encounter. So uh, it's my non-spoiler take on it. Yeah, I, uh, we'll have to talk to you again about that. But it. It, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about It Follows is that on its surface, it's the structure of every movie, you know, of every teen horror movie. Okay, there's teens in, in peril and there's a killer on the loose. So it's an infinitely delightful to both have that familiar structure and that familiar hallmark and yet to so subtly play and subvert those expectations so like i mean highest possible marks um go to it follows from me on that aspect yeah yeah i totally agree with you and i love that movie and yeah. like you said especially with some of the books thing like i could ramble on about that forever yeah. but one thing that i really wanted to talk to you about as well is um you your new anthology that you edited from Lathe Press, uh, Spirits Unwrapped. Oh, yeah. And, I, you know, it's interesting, and I don't want to spoil too much of it, because um, you did write an intro about why, but maybe for someone who's not aware of the anthology, I was just kind of curious, you know, why mummies for a theme? Yeah, you know, I mean, the... the, the um... <laughs> The answer to that, I mean, I'm a very, it's very, uh, there's, there's a very specific answer to that. I mean, um, again, in the, in the introduction, I just talk about as, you know, sort of the sense of wonder as a kid or as a youngster, like how mommy's connected to, you know, um, mythology or magic, ancient Egypt, of course. And there's this sort of a sense of wonder and a sense of darkness uh, a sense of cosmicness before i even knew what cosmic horror was and i'm not sure if i've mentioned i think because i try to keep it positive but i'll give you the straight answer to this when the guy i think was it 99 as well it was the late 90s and not dissing um whatever is it brandon frazier or whoever like yeah that movie, was it brandon frazier when that movie came out i was like so 
excited. I'm like, oh my god, they're the mummy. They're making a mummy. This is going to be the best thing ever. And for me, for this viewer, it was not the best thing ever. Like, I totally understand that it's a family, it's a beloved movie, and it's family friendly, and it's all that. But I was like, where's the fucking darkness? Where's the ancient Egyptian mad? You know, I was like, where yeah. is it? You know, where is it? You promised it to me, and it's not there. And I think I was forever scarred, and these seeds of of just um, wanting that, just wanting something um, about a mummy who stayed with me. That was delivered to me when I read the short story called Private Grave Nine by um, the esteemed author Karen Joy Fowler. And I won't spoil that story because it's reprinted in Spirits Unwrapped. We're very um, uh, privileged to be able to have reprinted the story. Um, but in that story, there is um, – it's more than I could have imagined. There is a there is a mummy. It's like the only story in the book that's set in Egypt. And it really explores the darkness of the human condition. So back um, – uh, you know, back in, I think it was 2005, I even came up with a chapbook. Um, I had asked a couple of authors I knew back then to um, come up with a progenitor chapbook for eventually what became Spirits Unwrapped. I was like, all right, Karen Joy Fowler, like this literally dark literary exploration of what a mummy story could be, go with it. And I had some authors do that. And um, when I approached all these authors for this book, that was that was the guidelines like hey try to stay out of ancient egypt if you can but i really want to see um you know what the sense of horror the sense of otherness the sense of darkness and the sense of wonder that is just sort of naturally there in the mummy as a thing yeah and you know, I didn't really even realize it until I picked up Spirits Unwrapped. But if you think about it, you know, a lot of your, you know, archetype monsters that, you know, define horror, you know, your uh, werewolves, your vampires, zombies, they all have like these big resurgent cycles recently. Like for a while, you couldn't throw a rock without hitting a vampire book or, you know, the same thing. Um, but like with mummies, I was thinking about it and I'm like, you know, there's tons of potential there for some really creepy stuff. Why hasn't there been a resurgence in like mummy fiction? Yeah. Who, who knows? Yeah. Like maybe, I mean, <laughs> for a second there we had, I had great hope, but this universal, uh, universe, you know, I guess pop culture and who knows what you know, drives it. You know, often nowadays it, it's like a big property, right? Like, it's like before Tom Cruise got attached to it and before it became just another action movie, right? Like, I thought maybe like the, the second resurgence of the mummy or the second resurgence of the universal was there, but um, yeah, I mean, hey, you know what? Like, we can we can have it, we can have it in the small press or we could have it in, in the weird fiction, um um area here because it does you know um wider you know wider culture or not like it's just something that lends itself um to the small press and to weird fiction i mean i think we one of the interesting things about weird fiction is that most most authors of it do tend to shy away from the traditional monsters i think inherently because 
I think one, while not a requirement, one of the hallmarks of weird fiction, you know, as a genre, right, or as a term, it, right, it, it, often it has that sense of the unexplained or the sense of the unknowable, right? So it just doesn't, it just doesn't maybe on its face fit in with Frankenstein's monster or the Wolfman, you know, or or Dracula or even a mummy. So, but then again, like they are out there. I have read, you know, I have read um, some weird fiction that does have some of these classic monsters in it. And the mummy, maybe it's e- it was easier uh, because maybe the rules aren't so well defined as as some of these other ones. It lent itself at least for these authors to give us these non-traditional takes and when it like not set in Egypt, set in different cultures and so many different approaches of how they are going to hit you with that sense of horror or sense of uh, awe and wonder. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. And, you know, that's what I, that's what surprised me about this anthology is, you know, I knew it wasn't all going to be, you know, the same story like Egypt and, you know, the same sort of marks. But I, I was like, well, you know, I, I wonder, you know, how much you could do with a mummy. And I, I loved pretty every story in here for different reasons. I'm so glad you did, because, because, of course, I'm the editor. I'm going to say this, but man, do I love every story in this book. <laughs> yeah. They're so, so different. And like, you know, the, but, um. They all work, and, and somehow they work together, you know? Like, even um, uh, even a couple of the stories are, like, they really run the emotional gambit. I mean, Lee Thomas's um, short story, Flowers for Bitsy, it's like, God, it, it's just an emotional gut punch. And then, you know, you have David Wellington's story, which is like, wow, yeah. like, there's humor <laughs> in it, and there's there's hope among that darkness. Like, wow, you still... Oh my God, you know, you got me to feel hopeful in here. You know, there's so um, um, there's so many standouts for me. Um, there's uh, an author, Casilda Ferrante. Um, she writes um, writes out of uh, Australia, and it's one of one of her first published stories. And she took she took the concept of a hand of glory, which is like something out of um, out of witchcraft, out of out of folklore, and really really <laughs> ran with it. Just told an absolutely enthralling historical fiction story yeah it's getting back to like what we were talking about earlier like she really takes you to a place like uh, australia in a, in a different century and and i'm right there i'm right there with the story um so you know so so much that i really do enjoy about it yeah and um you know some of the other stories that stood out for me which you know also going back to the point about a different time like one thing I really like within horror and weird fiction and stuff is when they're set in like a different time period, but particularly, you know, pretty far in the past, you know, so like histor- basically historical horror, I guess you could yeah. call it. I feel like it lends itself very well to that, to horror because, you know, a lot of times, and there's tons of, you know, great modern horror stories, but I like the fact in historical horror, you know, these characters that are dealing with this, they really don't have very many options to turn to. Like, they can't be like, man, what's going on here? Let me look up what this could be and, like, have all this information. <laughs> like, everything yeah. is, they're so basically cut off 
from everything that I feel like it helps kind of amplify the horror of those stories. But um, the one story, it's kind of ironic because I'm going to go in the complete different direction here. Sure. One of the stories that I really liked was a uh, thon. I'm going to, I hope I don't mess up because the name too bad. At a nouveau. Yes. Into yeah. something rich and strange. Yeah. I loved how she took, you know, the concept of the mummy and put it in this futuristic society and also kind of played off of, you know, what you imagine when you think of a mummy. Yeah, like uh, I was so glad uh, to have her story. And, um, you know, I um, I was asking the authors, you know, um, you know, uh, Oh, to, to asking for someone to give me a science fiction take on it. I'm so glad that she came up with that because, um, yeah, there's so, um, I think science, you know, science fiction and horror work so well together and there isn't, there isn't enough of it. And, um, yeah, even with the, with the concept of the mummy, there's so much, there's so much potential, right? Like if you just, just hit your imagination, like, like the way, the way she did, like, yeah, okay, it feels like, on the one hand, it feels like this is going to be a traditional, like, dark, gritty science fiction story that we know of, but, yeah, she takes it by working in the concept of a mummy or a rap spirit. Um, yeah, I don't want, I really don't want to spoil this one, but, yeah, she takes it, yeah. takes it to a place that's really unique and different, and yet also totally horror and totally satisfying. Yeah, and, you know, that... You already touched on this, but that's one of the reasons why this anthology works so well for me is that there's so much variety in there. You know, the humor of Wellington's story, which I had a blast with that yeah. one, and, you know, the mixing of sci-fi, but it's not even just horror, you know, that's exemplified here. Like you have sci-fi, you have weird fiction, you have some humor, but then you also... This is, you know, kind of, I guess if I had to pick a Banner Ink Heist type story, which I loved all of them, but Ink Heist is kind of like, we focus a lot on horror, but it's also about crime and like where they intersect. Uh, and I'm going to pick, I, I'm gonna, if I could pick it, the, are you going to, are you going to pick Rody Hawk's story? Correct. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I love that story. You know, it was, you know, it seems like so like heavily like noir and stuff and you're kind of not sure where it's going and the way it's mixed in there i i just i loved it yeah it sounds like yeah i mean uh it sounds like it's got a lot of the quote-unquote the ink heist things going on it's it's historical it's set it's set in the uh the old west it's 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 texas and like and yeah, there's the there's that noir voice to it. Um, there's got the elements, <laughs> it's got the elements of crime that just dovetail, dovetail so perfectly with the supernatural, right? Like she makes it look easy, and yet it's yeah. also something completely. Well, it's got all those classic things. It just shows the strength Rody of you know Rody Hawk's writing is that it's also something new and really empowering um about it with that protagonist and where you know the way it, the way it ends up why i just I'm, i just love that story and i'm so happy um to have it i guess you know it's showing like the mummy the mummy is the one thing all these stories have in common but 
the mummy by giving us like the unexplained or by giving us that supernatural element in all its variations, the one thing that all the stories share is that it's allowing it to be a catalyst for great characters, for interesting characters, and for me, interesting characters, you know, in in dire situations always makes for a great story, whether it's whether it's on the moon on Saturn's moon or, you know, or, or wherever it is, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be down for that. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's kind of interesting that this is where the thread took us, you know, talking about the anthology and, you know, the different, you know, styles of each story. The way I've never, you know, edited an anthology, obviously, but one thing that always fascinates me is, you know, when you get the anthology, it's in its finished form, but, you know, eventually, or at the beginnings, it kind of starts out as, you know, a big collection of stories, and I always am interested when I hear about a process on how the anthology is structured, because I kind of look at it to take it to like the music side of things. Uh, I kind of look at it as like the balance of like when you're trying to make that perfect like mix CD or mixtape or playlist with the different, you know, cadence of the stories, the beats, you know, how the energy of each story carries throughout. And I was just curious, you know, what was the process like for you when you were putting together spirits on wrapped on, you know, how you kind of wanted to balance these stories? Oh, uh, very, very much what you just reported. I mean, I think all the stories work like a single, like, you know, everyone reads anthologies different. Oh, I started the back first. I started the front. I go to my favorite author. I go to the, my, when I never heard of everyone, you can read it any, any way, but yeah, I did, you know, since I had, I had the time, um, I wanted to put it together like a mix CD and you know wanted to right like sort of have yeah like sort of a cadence or a, sort of a rhythm to it um the 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 heart of of the book is the Karen the Karen Joy um the Karen Joy Fowler story which I feel like it was the anchor of you know it's a story about the human condition and human emotions so I felt like the I want I wanted to make the mixtape of an an emotional an emotional um an emotional journey in addition to you know all the different um the different kinds of stories that were in there um one cool um antidote like I knew uh, like I knew the note that I wanted to end the story on was going to be Lee Thomas's story but I hadn't I wasn't sure what was going to be the opening uh, to the book, and one of one of my favorite um, uh, newer authors is uh, Joanna Parapinski, and you know I was reading some of her work and I was corresponding with her, um, and I was talking that I was putting together the book and I was like, hey, you know, odd question, you know, you don't happen to be willing to write a mommy story or uh, even have a mommy story, and she was like, no, I really wish I, I well, she's like maybe I kind of do, I have. I have a story about a mummy unwrapping. I'm like, oh, you're kidding me. I mean, the book is called the book is called Spirits Unwrapped. What is, can, can I can I see the story? She's like, sure. I mean, you're not gonna lie, you know. You know, she was just like, not nah, you know, putting two and two together. And as soon as I got that story, I'm like, it's a it's a story set in Victorian England where people, you know, used to have these parties where they would unwrap mummies in the society and have a cocktail and let's unwrap a mummy and see what 
see what uh, scarabs and prizes are within. And I, as soon as I read that story, I knew that that was the opening note of uh, this unwrapping party was how, how we're going to kick it all off and, and sort of start the cadence of uh, the range of stories that we've been talking about. Yeah, and that that's kind of funny that, you know, it was about unwrapping and you yeah. already had the title. Yeah. And so I'm just curious, is this the first anthology that you've edited? Yes, yes. This is the first full-length anthology. Uh, back in 2005, I did a chapbook of the same name called Spirits Unwrapped. It had four stories. One of them uh, was by uh, Rudy Dornerman, who appears in the book. But um, this this was the first, um, uh, the, yeah, the first anthology that I've done for for a publisher. Um, yeah. Yeah, because. Um... And that's interesting that it started as a chat book, but um, I was just curious, did you, because I know when you put out like an anthology call, I'm, I'm not sure if it was like open submission or if you had authors in mind, but if it was open submission, I know that you probably had tons and tons and tons and tons of stories come in. And uh, did you did you read through all of those yourself? Did you have assistance? And what was the process like? Because one thing when I've talked to other people who maybe have edited anthologies is they start off with a fairly, you know, big project. But you had the benefit of doing one earlier that was a couple of authors. Did that help you when you? you know, took on Spirits Unwrapped in the version it is today? Yeah, yeah. Um, Spirits Unwrapped, it was, there was no open call. Um, you know, this is a project I've been working on for um, a long time, and I'm, I'm all, all for open calls. You know, I'm, I'm, I submit to open calls, and I'm a survivor of slush piles myself. Um, but just because um, it was my first time around, and what I knew was going to be a lengthy process in finding um, finding the home for it. You know, I wanted to find a publisher. Um, that's why Levé Press, Steve Berman, you know, uh, I was so happy to be working with him. I mean, these are professional writers. They got paid, um, you know, I, they got paid pro rates. They did the 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 workmanship on this is um, is top notch. It's a beautiful cover. So I knew it was just you know I knew it was going to be a while to do that. So you can't. Um, and it took a while. These authors were really patient in in sticking around for for that process. So like, you know, someone it, it's a lot harder to do that from someone you picked out of the slush. They're gonna, you know, you just can't you can't do it. Uh, I have I am experienced in reading um, slush. I used to be an editor, a slush editor, you know, submissions editor for a science uh, or slipstream magazine called Idiomancer, which uh, is now defunct, but. Um, you know, it was around for a while. So um, I was, you know, I did read a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of um, slush stories, you know, so I do, I do know what it, I do know what it's like. Yeah. But for this, for this book, I had the, um, the benefit of doing it a, uh, a different way, you know, the, um, right. The drawback to non-open calls is, yeah, you miss that, you miss that wonderful, amazing story by, you know, a first time writer or, or, or just anybody that you don't know. Um, 
the you know the the benefit of it is is yeah you can make that mixtape you know um i i wanted to include a short story the next in line by ray bradbury um and i was in contact with the bradbury estate ultimately i could not secure the rights in time but yeah you know like that's you know when you have an invite situation, you know, or it's going to be a partial reprint situation, yeah, it's just a different, different kind of tape, different kind of album. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of, you know, not to plug our own thing, but uh, Shane and I recently decided we were going to start hosting original fiction on Inkheist. Okay, and that's right. Congratulations on that. I, <laughs> that's excellent. Thank you. Yeah. How are you guys doing it? Are you doing open calls or are you doing it invites? Uh, for right now, it's invites because for a couple of different reasons. For one, um, and basically for anyone listening who may have missed the announcement, um, basically the whole thing is kind of centered around spontaneity. And um, our first author is John F.D. Teff, and we kind of talked to him about the idea first. It's kind of built around, around spontaneous creation, I call it. Okay. Um, where, because there's a music series out there, um, trying to remember it. I think it's called Shaking Through. But basically, they would invite bands in, you know, to come in there cold and write a song and record it over the process of a couple of weeks. That's so cool. So we kind of took that and made a literary equivalent. And uh, through talking with John, we figured about three weeks would be about a fair amount of time to basically go from conception to about a 1,500-word story. Um, John's is a little bit longer. But, yeah, we did invite for that because we wanted to take it slowly and kind of learn how to do it yeah and it's so that's so different you're doing more than just publishing a story you're doing like maybe the first behind the scenes uh reality tv or reality series of writing or something sounds like yeah it's kind of like that um and to just a fascinating thing where you know you can kind of see where it was born but yeah like you said we did it invite only to kind of, for us anyway, to kind of feel out the process because let's face it, like we read a lot of fiction. So we kind of have an idea of, you know, what types of stories would work. But as far as being, you know, a publisher or a curator, you know, of fiction and like publishing it on our site, we don't really, you know, we're not experts on it. So we didn't want to like bite off more than we could chew by, opening it to submissions and, you know, having it fail before it even got off the ground. Yeah. And it's just a massive, it's a massive commitment. Yeah. To do, it sounds like you guys are doing it right. It sounds like you guys have a really specific, uh, when I mean, right, like sounds like you have a really specific vision in mind and you guys want to, uh, to make sure to honor that and make sure that that, that that takes flight. Yeah. Before, you know, you, you get a thousand stories that becomes a, <laughs> becomes a life of its own. Yeah, and the other, you know, is strictly, you know, resources. Um, at, for currently, we're just self, you know, funding them. So we didn't want to like go too crazy right out the gate. But the goal is to, you know, slowly increase it over time to maybe where we do take submissions. But that's why I was kind of, I, I was glad to kind of hear that, you know, this was kind of like an invite only situation because. 
that's kind of how we're starting it. You know, we're planning on yeah. opening it up, but I was, it was cool to hear, you know, like how yours came together. And yeah, why. many of the same reasons. Yeah. I would love to, when I become, if I have the opportunity to do more or to become, if I become an established um, editor, I would, I would love to have the opportunity to, um, to do an open call that would, you know, while it does sound like an immense amount of work, it also sounds like the kind of work that I would absolutely love. And, uh, you know, I would love, right. Like you said, um, yeah, the, these projects that they, they take off, you know, you can, um, they, you could integrate that in, in the future. Now I'll definitely going to be che- uh, checking that out to see. It sounds like a really cool, um, and really something uh, different. going to be checking in to see how that goes, Rich. Thanks. Yeah, we should uh, we should have John's up sometime this month, but um, is it going to be printed or is it going to be an audio thing? Yeah, it's going to be printed on the site. Ah, Okay. And um, you know that's kind of a unanticipated segue, but um, recently, you know, in the Twitterverse, um, John, you know, he had had a very great informative thread about you know, anthologies and kind of like the struggles of getting them, you know, to market and like all the work that goes into it and, you know, just various pitfalls that surround the anthology. Um, I personally, I didn't really get into them until the past, you know, the past few years about the time I started the hard bookshelf, but I feel like they're a vital part, you know, of the fiction community because I can't tell you especially Spirits Unwrapped, a lot of these writers, with the exception of John Langan yeah. um, and David Wellington, a lot of these authors, you know, that was the first time I had really heard of them or read their work. And, you know, I found I loved every story in here. So that just introduced me to, you know, tons more authors. So I feel like they're important for that reason, but I know that, you know, there are some struggles with people getting anthologies made and, you know, not necessarily is all of it, you know, like doom and gloom, like Doug Murano, he puts out a ton of great anthologies and um, as an editor and, you know, there's publishers that have been putting out great anthologies, but I was just kind of curious, you know, yours was a little bit different, but, you know, what is like your take on anthologies both as an editor and as a reader um well as an editor it's like i can't be more happy to hear that this served as a gateway um for some of these um writers that i love and i love their work that now uh i've reached you as a reader with them and like it served as an introduction um over on the this I don't have a web page for it, but over on the Spirits Unwrapped Facebook page, just as a note, um, I'm doing inter author interviews with many, almost all of the um, authors. So right now we've got posted one with uh, Joanna Parapinski and John Langan. Um, you know, John obviously is somebody you know about, but just you know that's just a thing. It's just sort of a, an expanded um, biography section, you know, where you can learn a little bit a little bit more in detail about their work if if, if you happen to be interested in it so yeah as an editor uh i couldn't agree with you more that it one of the things these anthologies do is serve as a gateway um ellen datlow uh her years best and her themed anthologies were a gateway for me as a new uh reader um 
yeah, at the, at the time when I, um, I first started reading again, like when I first started writing again, this was quite some time ago, but you know what? I was at a point in my life where I'm like, oh, there's nothing good out there in genre. Wrong. <laughs> you know, like someone I got to, you know, I went to a, oh, and I'm glad I, I thought of this. Um, I went to one of Alan Datlow, uh, her reading series is called Fantastic Fiction at KGB Bar. Um, well, the great thing about that reading series, Rich, is they also, um, they po- they stream it or they podcast it. So you can, and they have an archive of it. So even if like you're not in the city and you can't get there, if your favorite author is doing it, or even if you just want to kind of listen to some different authors, um, that's a resource. Uh, Ellen, Ellen Dat- oh, and Matthew Kressel are the hosts. And uh, I think the website is Fantastic Fiction um, or Fantastic Fiction at KGB. And it's, it's a great... Um, yeah, it's a great resource to both, you know, you can't go wrong with any one of those authors there. And just if you're interested in hearing some great uh, readings other than like um, Pseudopod, which, the, you know, the pod, the, the Pseudopod, the Escape Pod family, they just, they do unbelievable production. They do fantastic work, but this is just a different um, one. So the second part of your question, um, yeah, I think. The small press and the small press anthology, it's just, they serve a vital, they really do serve a vital um, role. You know, and it, it's, it, I don't want it to sound like a, the, a backhanded compliment to say, like, they're putting out the not quite ready for primetime stuff. And because everything in these anthologies is ready for primetime, but let's face it, just the market, even some of, like, the fan, the most fantastic anthologies that are funded by big publishers that go out there just aren't reaching for whatever reason. Some of them aren't performing or they're not reaching audiences or they're just not, whatever reason they're not financially feasible or they're not working out. Um, there's like a golden age of like, of, even just this month of October, there's just so many books that are coming out that I got to read or that I want to read. And that, and that, that, are both like, you know, I'll pick, I'll pick it up because it's my favorite authors in there. I got to hear that story. And yet it's going to be a gateway as well. So I think I just in a really long winded way, we just agreed with you on that. <laughs> no, no, that, that I totally agree with you. And, you, you know, agree, agreeing with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, um, but you went into a little bit more detail than I did. Um, but yeah, I, I wish that, and I wonder why, because from what I've seen, a lot of readers out there um, are interested in short fiction and short stories. But like you said, it just seems like for whatever reason, the anthology doesn't reach them as much. But there has been tons of great ones. And hopefully, you know, I think they'll always be around, but I hope that they start to, you know, reach more of an audience, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I, I I hope so too. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I just I just don't know the mind of the everyday. Um, maybe it's something to do with marketing. Maybe it's something to do with um, you know, the bookstores. I just yeah, because when you do when you do meet people, even if they're not quote unquote hardcore reader or genre types, like you know um, you know I, I often you know I I talk to my parents who are recently retired and like oh yeah we want to read more and yeah short stories are great because you know. 
I can just read a short story, you know, but, but still like they, I think they don't, they don't usually come to the short story unless I sort of bring it to them, you know, and, um, I'm just, that's just my, my insight into maybe the mind of, of the everyday, you know, the everyday reader who's not like, you're not like, we're going to, you know, I, I have to handcuff myself to stop buying anthologies on a daily basis, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so too, uh, I think I forgot to mention this at the beginning, but, um, we're actually going to be partnering up on a project called Nighttime Logic. And I just, since this is kind of your project, I was wondering if you would want to share with the listeners kind of what Nighttime Logic is, how it got its start. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I'm really proud to announce, um, yeah, on this episode that um, – uh, I have a reading series that's called Nighttime Logic, and it's going to be the, the recordings of it. It's been going on for the past um, since uh, 2015, so for the past uh, four years now. Uh, and I've been recording some of them, and we're going to be uh, broadcasting those uh, recordings here in Inkhuis, thanks to, to Rich and Shane. So thank you so much, guys. I'm really honored uh, to have this opportunity to be a part of. Um, this excellent new and growing project called Inkai's Theater. Yeah, and thank you. Um, like I said, when Shane originally told me about it, uh, we were super, super excited. And I guess we can let listeners know that the first one is going to be Peter Straub. Yeah, the first, um, uh, this was a Peter Straub uh was a guest of Nighttime Logic back in 2017. And yeah, we're just, what what more can I say except to extreme gratitude and thanks for, you know, an author of uh, Peter's caliber. I, I just don't think, I just don't think there are, you know, there's anyone more, there's anyone out there just like a higher caliber. I mean, I'm just so, so grateful that um, Peter was a guest uh, of the reading series and, and allowed allowed uh, us to record it, you know, for uh, uh, some sort of future uh, broadcast. So Nighttime Logic got its start back in 2015. Um, the name of the reading series is based on that kind of, it's a term of art that I think is popularized by Kelly Link. I think it was coined by Howard Wald, the author Howard Waldrop. And I'm oversimplifying it, but I think nighttime logic often refers to the beats of a story or the part of a story that is felt but is not overtly um, explained. So it kind of it kind of fits right into a lot of what you and I were talking today about, Rich. Um, and you know, the reading series started by me wanting to um, just bring that sort of convention experience you know back home to people who couldn't get out to conventions because let's face it new york there's no shortage of reading series there's top-notch reading series every night of the week new york is home to ellen datlow and matthew kressel's fantastic fiction and jim freund's uh new york uh, review of science fiction both uh, of which are top-notch and i've been going to for decades and have inspired me so what's different about nighttime logic is in addition to my guests uh, reading, uh, we have an intensive uh, interview. Um, so I try to read 
um, starting with, with Peter Straub, um, I, I tried to read as much or all of their body of work uh, to prepare for the interview and even read as many interviews as possible to try to find, just try to find something different to bring to it. And with the interview with, with Peter, um, Peter uh, has also been an editor and um, he edited a volume of uh, fabulous stories. And the, I think the, I think Peter's initial interest in appearing uh, as a guest of the show is the half of the first half of uh, the show was talking to Peter about that book and about, about what it was that he saw in these stories, an intensive interview about genre and about um, uh, him putting together that book. And then he, he reads um, from work and the second half of the interview is about, you know, is, is about Peter and his life and uh, his work. So yeah, we're really happy to, um, you know, I, I do these because there's so much work that's involved in it. I do it in person in New York twice a year. And uh, I'll be, we'll be broadcasting them on Inkeyes moving forward. And we have a couple of them, uh, a backlog that uh, Shane and Rich will be um, interspersing within the Inkeist, um, uh programming uh, to bring them to you uh, before that happens. So, yeah, thank you so much for um, uh, making me a small part of the project, Rich and Shane. Yeah, it's our pleasure. And it, it's it was a pleasure hearing you talk about, you know, what inspired this series, because that's kind of the same approach we have. Like when we have our guests on, we like to try and read, you know, either a lot of their books or, you know, at least the most recent and kind of use that to fuel the questions. And I like the fact that you do it twice a year because it makes it kind of personal, especially since you actually do it face to face. Yeah. And, um, you know, it makes for such a great conversation and, you know, it's interesting because that's kind of how we started ours was we just had this desire to, you know, talk to our favorite authors because, I mean, Shane lives out in Portland, so he's got it a little bit better than me. But yeah, I, where, where are you coming from, Rich? Where are you broadcasting from? I am from central New York uh, in between okay. Rochester and Syracuse. OK, OK, OK. And, uh, you know. I'm about an hour from each, but um, especially now that I have a little one, I don't get out as much. But, yeah, I'm basically out in the middle of nowhere. So we always had this dream of doing this podcast. And Shane and I were both so nervous um, because we're, we weren't used to talking, you know, in an interview format live. A lot of our old interviews were, you know, through email or chat or something like that. And we're still trying to find our footing with that. And it's getting a little better with each episode. But um, yeah, I think you do a great job. I think you have. Thanks. You, you know, either you've worked really hard on it or you have a natural way. Because, you know, I think, um, yeah, as someone who does do interviews and does do them live, I know. Um, yeah, I just know all the things, that, all the ways I've messed up and all the ways <laughs> I go wrong. But, yeah, I know you feel really you feel really prepared and feel really um really thoughtful and, and you know I feel really comfortable uh talking with you even though it's the first time we met so I think uh that's gotta be a sign that that, that things are working out uh, hopefully that this will be uh, I think it will be um, enjoyable to people listening to it as well because I've been having a great time talking with you 
Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I had a great time too. Um, Because like I said, sometimes I get so nervous and people, (laughs) I'm sure people picked up on it. I got my own little tics where I, I even realize it as it's happening where I'm like, I like, oh, I was interested or this is interesting or I was just wondering. But, you know, that's, yeah. I, I think that kind of lends it that charm. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you're a, lot more charming. you're a lot more charming than me when I get nervous. I think I, uh, I'm not sure if you've, you've listened all the way through the Peter Straub interview yet. And hopefully Shane or whoever does your editing can cut it out. But I think we actually let lit Peter on fire at some point in the interview, like, <laughs> There was no lights, and we had a candle, and I think I was holding the candle while he was reading, and I think we accidentally lit him on fire in there. So you know what? Like, <laughs> spontaneously human combusting your guests, I think you're going to be ahead of the game here. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because uh, really we – I don't know if you've heard these episodes, but we basically started this because of John. Like we always wanted to do it, but he was like, oh, would you be interested in doing these behind-the-scenes episodes for the fearing? And we were like, absolutely. And we were thinking it was going to be like a chat-based thing. And he's like, oh, can they be audio? And then Shane and I were like, I guess we're starting a podcast. But it's I'll, funny. I'll be how, that, how that got started, yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. Fantastic. But it's funny. I think uh, I think John would have been upset if you accidentally set Peter on fire. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll have to review the tape. But yeah, there's definitely there was definitely some fire involved there. (laughs) But yeah, like I like I said, it's been great talking with you. And um, real quick, Daniel, um, I guess we can just go ahead and we'll do our short little break. Shane will cut this part of it out. Um, okay. And uh, I'll, if you want, I'm just going to take a quick break and then yeah. I can, uh, I'll send you a message when I'm back and when you're, or you can send me one vice you versa. Want, you want to just take like a, a, a so we're going to disconnect the call? No, I'll leave the call going, but I'm just going to stop the recording. Okay. Uh, you, what? So you want to take like take like five ten minutes or so, and then we'll, we'll just meet back here. I'll take a bathroom break and take a yeah. break, and then I'll, I'll I'll read it. Yeah, that sounds good. All right. Cool. Um, yeah, because I'm not sure. I don't want to mess up my screen, so when I get back, I'll just be like, "Hey, you there?" And you know, so okay. I don't start touching buttons. I'm on an iPad. I don't want to mess it up. So take <laughs> take all the time you need, and then I'll I'll probably be back before you. All right. Sounds good, Daniel. All right. Thank you, Rich. Got your crowd in 